Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. ModCloth is your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you. They feature a broad range of styles from the understated to the adventurous, the classic to the contemporary, the retro to the right now. At ModCloth, you'll find anything but ordinary dresses, tops, bottoms, shoes, bridal styles, outerwear, and decor. They even carry books, journals, and office accessories perfect for lit lovers. Go to modcloth.com and enter promo code CRIME at checkout to get $20 off an order of $100 or more. Make every day extraordinary with ModCloth. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally, that's right, other podcasts. This week, we'll be talking about the latest chart-topping true crime podcast on the block, In the Dark. And joining me to dive right in is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. I don't know if I can do this back in the closet, Rebecca, after being in front of a big studio audience. That was pretty swanky, right? It was. <laughs> and also... And being on a stage, I had like a barca lounger and like a random bed and closet, <laughs> <laughs> like in the middle of Death of a Salesman. <laughs> hey, we've got old hangers in the corner over there. It's, that's it's a... still in the closet, yeah. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. I agree with Kevin. No one's bringing me wine this week. <laughs> yeah, but you have wine of your own, right? I do. Actually, it was my birthday last weekend, and it seemed like everybody brought wine to my party. So I have wine for a while now. Also with us is our favorite curator of unusual items and our professional wet blanket and novelist of noir, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Aloha, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what strange item do I curate? Yeah. Well, you know, Amazon items. You curate those usually uh, for yeah, us. Okay, Although yeah. we're not doing it this week. I think that when we're back to weekly, I think we should not do it all the time. Maybe surprise our listeners with an Amazon list here and there. So, Toby, how are you recovering from our big live show last week? I'm recovering quite well, actually. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Laura? Uh, well, it's back to reality. You know, um, I'm getting ready for the big chili cook-off at the fire department this weekend. Yeah, what's so that, that all about? Uh, it's. I think it's a fundraiser. I really don't know, quite honestly. All I know is I am on the women's team, which is a new thing this year. And uh, I came up with the name the Red Hot Ladies. So, mm. so it's uh, like a taste test who has the best chili? 
Yeah, who has the best chili? So basically they'll block off like the municipal parking lot in Amesbury where my husband works and they'll have different teams from the fire department and everybody gets there at like six in the morning and starts making chili. And everybody starts with like the same ingredients. So you're all given like oh. certain things. Like Iron Chef. And, yeah. And then you can modify. You can bring your own ingredients, but you can't prep anything ahead of time. So yeah. you have to do it when you get there in the parking lot. So if you want to bring like uh, ground pork and turkey or a special kind of spice, you can do that, huh? We can. You know, I have some moose meat in my freezer that I'm totally freaked out by. So I'm thinking <laughs> of taking that. Somebody gave it to us. I'm like, hey, I can pawn this off on the Chili Fest. <laughs> that Are you going to throw something you're freaked out into some pot for the public? Look. Yeah, they'll eat it. That is yeah. the most, that's like the most New Hampshire thing that's ever happened on this podcast. I happen to have some moose meat. I just happen to have some moose meat in my I freezer. I didn't know what to do with it, so I'm going to give it to the public. Well, I have to tell you, so I opened up, the. we have a big freezer downstairs because a few years ago we bought like half a pig and that also came with half oh, a slab Jesus of pork Christ. back fat, which what the hell do you do with that? What do you do with um, back fat? Apparently you either fry it up like bacon, which mm-hmm. is what they did in the war, or you like make bird seed stuff out of it. Suet, yeah. But there was these other, recently I went down there and there was these like packages of meat and they weren't marked and I brought one up and I said what is this and my husband's like oh that's moose meat and yeah. I was like yeah no I'm all set well we got the secret ingredient to your chili <laughs> I feel like we should have a little like soundtrack item here like that's real country lawbreaker real country you should have bring your banjo so Kevin I know what happened to you this past week since our live show but you have something going on like in the future yeah you wanted to mention yeah I'm doing this again this year where I'm doing a fundraiser to raise money for our crisis center in the area and it's called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. So I will be putting on high heel shoes and literally walking a mile. And Literally walking a mile? I didn't measure it out. I don't but think it it's seems, literally a mile. It seems like that. <laughs> on my He's literally walking. I'm literally walking <laughs> a mile. And uh, look, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's funny and it's a good cause. And even though like one out of every four men will experience sexual, domestic, or emotional abuse in their lifetime, the way men deal with the specter of domestic violence in a way it affects their lives is very different than it does for women. And so for me, it's not only a fun sort of fundraiser, but it's also a time of reflection because I really feel like I have to figuratively walk in a woman's shoes to really figure that out because for a man, it's not the same thing. That's right. And the conversation that men have could change the whole conversation overall. I mean, really, when men are the ones who sort of acknowledge what's going on, things could change. Yeah. So long term goal is to change that culture. The short term goal is to raise money that will help people today right now. So there's a link on our website, crimewriterson.com. If you'd like to make a, a donation pledge, you know, for my high heeled walk, That'd be great. A lot of folks did it last time. And if you got a couple of bucks, love for you to do it again. What color are your shoes this year? Uh, it's the same. I ha- I'm not buying multiple high heel <laughs> shoes for myself. <laughs> I'm wearing the neon pink. Fuchsia. Fuchsia, that is that color the color? Is fuchsia, right. yes. They're hot. What fuchsia? size are they, Kevin? That goes with anything. Oh, what size are they? <laughs> when they're, I know what size they're they are. Not, they're, well, they're actually women's shoes. They weren't made for men. <laughs> They were strong enough for a man, but they were made for a woman. <laughs> and uh, how high are the heels? They're not very high, but you know, if you haven't done that at all, it's very hard to walk. He's a giant baby, Laura. Well, they're they're high enough. Yeah. I can't walk in high heels. Like oh, when okay. I wear high heels now, like my feet hurt for like the next day. I'm like, I am so pathetic. So. Yeah, but yeah. I actually can't walk in that. You're just like, oh, my feet hurt afterwards. Like, <laughs> no, I'm like my ankles are giving way. And Should I- we Facebook live this? Yeah, I was going to oh. say, let's periscope this or something. <laughs> God, not enough money. I would money. love to watch this. 
I don't know if you want us to Facebook Live it. I kind of think that we need to set a financial goal. And if we make it, we could Facebook Live it for everyone. Oh. I think that's a good idea. I'll make a donation tonight, Kevin, if, if you're going go to Facebook It's it. a good cause. It's a good mm-hmm. cause. Go to sure. crimewriterson.com. You'll find a link right on the homepage to donate to Kevin walking less than a mile in it's women's a mile. shoes to raise money for our local domestic violence crisis center. It is an excellent cause. Well, that was altruistic. I'm very proud of you, Kevin. Thank you. Now let's get Thanks into business. Thanks for your donation, by the way. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I did make a donation. Yeah. I think I put you over your like minimum goal line with my donation, right? Just about, just about, yeah. <laughs> Little did you know that it came from our joint checking account, so it's not really <laughs> my donation. <laughs> All right, so let's get down to business. A few weeks ago, the podcast In the Dark hit my podcast feed. It's by APM Reports. It dives into the 26-year-old case of Jacob Wetterling, a Minnesota boy whose kidnapping helped shape a culture of fear among American parents. Now, interestingly, the case itself was solved just as In the Dark was about to be released, and it made huge news. And I'm just wondering really quickly, Laura, had you ever heard of the Jacob Wetterling case before? I had not. What about you, Toby? No. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, no, I have not. Yeah, neither had I. And I know people from Minnesota. My closest coworker actually grew up in Minnesota. And the way that some cases are sort of stuck in our heads, you know, the cases that we grew up with, this case was really a touchstone for people who lived in Minnesota and the Midwest. So the podcast itself is from APM, which is American Public Media, which is based in Minnesota. It's the result of nearly a year of investigative reporting, and it asks a question few investigative shows would dare to ask, or few reporters, I think, would dare to ask, which is, why did the police fail for 26 years to solve the case of this missing boy? Now, two things to you listeners. First, if you haven't yet listened to In the Dark, I want you to pause this right here. I usually don't encourage you to stop listening to the show, but I do. I want you to pause it, and I want you to go back and listen to the first four episodes of In the Dark, because listening to this show, I think, will be more interesting for you if you have listened, and also, I think it's worth listening to. Yeah, and our podcast isn't going anywhere. It'll <laughs> still be here when you, you we'll come back. We'll still be here, and then we don't have to worry so much about spoilers. We're not like one of those on-demand movies that you rent, and if you don't watch it in 24 hours, it goes away. Well, we're going to try not to be too spoilery in this episode, but I also think that In the Dark should be required listening for any true crime fan or fan of podcasts. Second, I cannot wait to talk about In the Dark with my panel of fellow crime writers, but it might be a good idea to check in with someone I spoke to earlier this week who will be able to fill in some of the details about the podcast. So I'm just going to go ahead and let her make her own introduction, and then we'll continue our discussion about In the Dark on the other side of this conversation. It's about 20 minutes long. So my name is Madeline Barron, and I'm an investigative reporter at American Public Media, and I'm the lead reporter and host of a new investigative podcast called In the Dark. Now, just in case any of our listeners haven't yet listened to the first episodes of In the Dark, which I doubt because it's been like number one and number two on iTunes for the last couple of weeks. Congratulations on that, by the way. I'm wondering if you could give us just a thumbnail sketch of the case at the center of it and where it's at right now. So this is a podcast about this notorious child abduction case in Minnesota. In 1989, in a small town in central Minnesota, an 11-year-old boy named Jacob Wetterling was biking home from a store with his friend and a brother, and a man walked out into the road and kidnapped him, and Jacob was never seen again. And then just uh, a couple weeks ago, a man finally confessed to the crime and led authorities to Jacob's remains a couple towns over. So for nearly 27 years, this case had been unsolved. And what we were looking at was 
why was this case unsolved and what were the consequences of that? That is what I was wondering, you know, as somebody who um, works in radio and someone who makes a podcast and someone who works in news, you had a story that was happening. You did a lot of the interviews that we hear in the podcast, I'm assuming long before the news broke about this confession. The question that you ask in the podcast is what went wrong in the investigation. Was that the question you always intended to ask? Yeah. So from the very beginning, we we never set out to play detective or to create like a, a whodunit. It was never that type of reporting project. So, you know, from the initial pitch of the story nine months ago or even more than that now, it was always what went wrong in this investigation or, you know, even a more open question. Why hasn't this case been solved? And what have the consequences been of that And so that was always our focus. So when we heard that this man, Danny Heinrich, had confessed, it was another piece of the puzzle for us to answer this question of of how is it possible to go nearly 27 years? And in a case that had, I think this is really important, that had massive resources. You know, most cases are lucky to have more than one detective assigned to them. And this had about 100 investigators at its height. It had FBI agents, state crime bureau agents, local sheriff's deputies, the National Guard for a while. So that was always our focus. And we had, you know, done some reporting into uh, various people who had been suspected both presently and in the past so that we could be prepared, you know, to the extent that you can be if there are developments in the case. But yeah, that was never our focus. I mean, that's really, I think, one of the things we're doing that's different than a lot of other true crime podcasts. You know, it's really interesting to me, though, that the interviews that you did, I'm assuming before this news broke of Danny Heinrich's confession, intersects with his having done it. I mean, you have people who had run-ins with him. You have it, it, it really strikes me as pretty amazing that you had that material. Did you have to go back and to, to sort of do some re-editing, retracking because now there was a conclusion to this case and you wanted to make sure that you could demonstrate better how the pieces should have fit together for law enforcement? That is a perfect way of putting it. So, yes. Yeah, we went back and we reopened, you know, the the stories and added and, and changed a few things and were able to, I think, more clearly look at those key moments, to know what those key moments are. I mean, to know, you know, how Danny Heinrich got to the dead end road and where he went after and, you know, what happened next. To know those things allows us to put that up against what we know people in the neighborhood saw, to know, you know, what other crimes that Danny Heinrich had probably committed in the past, to look at, you know, we already knew the detectives who'd investigated those crimes. And so we're trying to piece those together. And you never know. I mean, I think that, yeah, I don't want to give away kind of for people who haven't listened to, like episode two in particular, but there are things that were striking as soon as we heard the confession for how they we put this puzzle together or how you could see how things could have gone differently because we know who did it and we know what happened that night. Now, one of the things that you pose right at the beginning is that this investigation was a failure by any measure. I believe you actually use those words or, or words similar to them. We're really used to hearing investigators at the end of a long case get up, congratulate themselves on the diligence of the people who've been working the case for all these years. And you basically call them out in a way. You say, you know, this this wasn't solved for 21 years. It could have been, and we're going to show it. I do think that there is, I know at least for me, I always feel like 
when I have a reason to be critical of law enforcement, when I either write about them or talk about them on my show, that I do feel like I always have to couch, you know, well, most cops are really great and do a really good job and are very diligent, but blah, blah, blah. And you are very, very clear. This investigation was a failure. Did you feel like you were breaking some ground and just being so transparent when you made that statement and and not couching it at all? Did that, that feel scary to you or did it just feel like it was absolutely the right thing to say and it couldn't have been said any differently? So in past investigative reporting projects I have worked on, I mean, you do a lot of reporting to be able to say a line like that, right? So it's just one sentence, but there's a there's nine months of reporting behind it. And I guess the only question would be, do you say that up front and just tell people this is what we, you know, or do you save that for the end? And we felt it was clear to say up front as plainly as we could why people should listen to this. You know, that we're not going to go on some meandering journey that might turn out to be nothing. You know, that we've already done the reporting. And so we can say this. And, and I should say, too, I mean, it's not, and this will, I think will become clear in subsequent episodes, it's not as though law enforcement didn't work hard on the case. There are officers working 16, 18-hour days who weren't seeing their family for a really long time. But I think what we were trying to do is look at, okay, what, what were they doing? You know, I mean, obviously everyone wanted to solve the case, but I think it's as reporters, we have to hold law enforcement accountable for what the decisions they're making and how to conduct an investigation the same way that we would hold any other profession accountable. And also so that people can learn from this investigation, that it doesn't just get kind of wrapped up and put away as solved and, and that's the last we ever hear about it, but that we look critically at it and see what could have been done differently, what might be helpful to be done differently in other cases, and whether it was possible for this to be solved much sooner with much fewer consequences, both, of course, to Jacob and his family and also to all these other people that we get into in the podcast to get swept up in this in different ways. You do describe, you know, the largest search ever undertaken in this case. There were mm-hmm. white ribbons, a white ribbon campaign, posters. You know, there was an event where, you know, baseball players came with jackets with Jacob's name stitched on them. You talk about the big human chain. Right. Uh, th- these are images, I think, of anyone who grew up in the, you know, 80s, like very familiar images, I think, in terms of those big sort of branded crimes. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's how I like to, I, I sort of think of like the milk carton era as being like the era of the branded kidnapping, the branded missing child case where the kid's name becomes synonymous with a fear. And you say that that because this search was so large, you know, perhaps because there was so much hype that people assumed that the investigation had been really, really thorough. Do you see this as a general downside of these like highly publicized, highly branded criminal cases? So I guess what I could say to that is that we get into this question a lot of whether it made sense to go big with the case and to turn it into this national phenomenon or whether it would have been a better decision to keep the case local and small to the extent that that that's possible for authorities to do that. Because I do think what can happen when you have so much noise in a case, it gets harder to see, you know, see what's there, you know, to see the the road and the facts around you, even when you do have so many officers. So but yeah, I mean, there are these cases like, I mean, there are, you know, Johnny Gosh or Aton Pates, uh, you know, a number of these cases. And, you know, Johnny Gosh was the first milk carton kid that become these singular, almost in, in themselves in the moment cases that transfix the country in the 80s. You know, it really is a phenomenon of the late 70s and into the, the rest of the 80s that 
you know, we get stranger danger and all of that stuff. And, and this idea that, you know, if this could happen to this one kid, like if this could happen to Jacob Wetterling in a really small, safe town in central Minnesota, then this could happen anywhere. And the implication being that then no one is safe. You know, if Jacob Wetterling can't bike home from the video store on a dead-end road, then no children are safe in this country. I mean, that's how it gets talked about. And so the impact of having that kind of mystery out there, you know, of not being able to say, well, no, it was this one guy who did this, and we know who he is, and now he's in prison, um, to not be able to do that, I think, just increase the, the fear. Right. You know, even when pe- for people who didn't live in the town or around it or anything like that. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I don't know if you get into this or not, I'm guessing not, but one of the things I think around why, I mean, that fear is actually in a way sort of beneficial to certain people sort of within the ecosystem. If you think about it, like television news does really, really well when there is a lead story about a really, really scary case of somebody gone missing, somebody's missing kid. I mean, there's, you know, law enforcement gets more resources when a case gets, you know, really big and it's highly publicized and they need more gear and equipment. And some law enforcement outlets operate where they take something and they say, we can't tell anybody, it's all locked down. We don't, I think, understand that. But at the same time, we also don't understand that there is a reason why we are incentivized in some ways, I think, to get the pants scared off of us when something like this does happen. And I, this was this pretty much defined my childhood, the Adam Walsh case, the Jacob Wetterling case. I mean, this stuff happened when I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and it really seemed like my life was very much shaped as an adolescent by getting home quickly after school, learning to not put my name on my backpack, all that stuff. It's, it's cultural, it's ingrained, and yet there's, a, I think, a reason for it. Am I, am I crazy to, to think that? I mean, I guess some in law enforcement might say, well, we need all those resources because it was this big case. But yeah, I don't, one of my theories at least is that there was something happening in the 80s where a certain kind of story that would raise questions about domestic life, family life in the United States was particularly popular. So you see that with like the daycare abuse scandals where you have moms going into the workforce. And so a scandal about the daycare abuse at a daycare center has this kind of broader cultural relevance at that moment. And I think you see that with the type of child abduction cases that tend to get more publicity in that time period where people can insert themselves into it. You know, the Aton Pates case is a good example of this. You know, that's in the late 70s, but the parents, you know, let him go and walk to the bus. A totally reasonable thing to do. For the first time, right? It was like the first time he'd ever walked to the bus. Right. And so people can relate to that and think, oh, that might be something I could see myself doing that. Or, you know, and it also has this dark turn, too, where people will criticize the parents for doing things that are completely reasonable. I mean, Jacob Waterling biked with two friends. He wore a reflective vest. They had a flashlight. It was a safe road. You know, there's no... He got permission, too. It's not like he snuck out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a babysitter to watch the other... I mean, he did... They did all the things that you're supposed to do. Yeah. It's, I think it might have something to do with family life in the 80s, but, but I'm not exactly sure. I mean, you have seen, you know, there were these other moments in the United States in the past, like the Lindbergh case, which I was doing some research on that, and it... At least some people who've written about it say that that's the first time that radio was used as a breaking news format was for the Lindbergh case in the 30s, the son of Charles Lindbergh being kidnapped. And so, you know, there are these moments where these particular types of crimes, for for probably a variety of reasons, transfix us. But I think there's a dynamic, too, where we let the fear of what happened blind us to 
the investigation. You know, the, all of the attention is on what kind of person would commit this crime, what are the graphic details of what happened, and it's important to know what happened and who did it. But we then don't focus on what law enforcement are doing. Yeah, and some of the things that you detail, even in the first episode, just about the initial reactions after this kid is reported missing. You know, the cops give up the search for him at 2 a.m. They don't canvass the neighbors. Stuff that if you've only seen like two episodes of Law and Order, you know, like this is just not how you investigate a crime. When you were unpacking these details and you sort of were able to confirm that, you know, these neighbors had never been spoken to or they were spoken to weeks later, people who were very, very close to the scene of the crime, how many like, oh, shit moments did you guys have as you were sort of uncovering all these details? I mean, yeah, that was surprising. I will say that, I mean, the neighborhood canvas stuff was surprising. You know, we went into it completely with an open mind, like with investigative reporting. You don't know if you have a story right away. You might think you do, but you might find out after three months of reporting that you don't. Yeah, when we found that out, I mean, that was a more basic problem than what we had perhaps been imagining, you know, that they would not have talked to all of the neighbors right away on the dead end road was not something that we went in thinking was the case or expecting was the case. But yeah, I mean, when we found that out, I mean, it was surprising and significant, you know, especially because of what some of those people said. So at the very beginning of the podcast, we hear some actually, we hear Jacob's own voice, which is, you know, really, really haunting and moving. And then we also find out right away that you have interviews with Patty and Jerry, Jacob Wetterling's parents. You talked to them, I'm assuming, probably a while ago, probably not since Danny Heinrich confessed to the crime, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, we talked to them over the course of many months. So I've been reporting on this for about nine months. So we conducted interviews I mean, we were more or less done with our reporting by the time that this news broke that Danny Heinrich had confessed the crime and was had led the authorities to Jacob's remains. So most of what people, you know, are going to hear has been reported. But actually, we are doing now more reporting, additional reporting, because of things we're finding out. And it's interesting because we not expect to really be in that situation. We thought, you know, we're going to be done and, you know, then we'll we'll air them or we'll release them. And, you know, not being quite so simple as it turns out. Listening back to those conversations with Jacob's parents, now knowing what happened to him, I mean, does that just lend a different view to, to those conversations when you hear them back and you hear that when you talk to them, they still didn't know what happened? Yeah. And they hadn't known for so long. You know, I mean, t- to not know for nearly 27 years what happened to your son. Yeah, I... I mean, I have thought about that a lot, like going back and listening to to those conversations, you know, and they were incredibly generous with their time and speaking with us in, in great detail of, and not, you know, really about what it, what is meant for their family, you know, to give us the best sense possible of what this has meant to not know. So, yeah, to know now that they do know and to know that it's, you know, the details are awful, you know, is not. I think like everyone said, when the news came out, this is not the outcome people had been hoping for. Were you worried when the news broke that the case was solved, that we talked about how you rejiggered your production and how you had to go back and sort of rearrange? And I know that you changed the schedule slightly of the release of the podcast. Did you realize as this news was breaking that you now had the opportunity to really own this story? You are the singular person who has done this kind of reporting on the story and, and you are like posed to tell it? Did that thought occur to you immediately or did that happen to you later when you saw yourself at number one on iTunes? Well, our thinking was when this happened, 
that there was a public need for context immediately. You know, that now people are going to hear the name Danny Heinrich. And we have a, a lot of information that responsibly, I mean, as reporters, we should not sit on, especially, you know, like the way we had originally structured the podcast, you know, we didn't have that coming up right away. So the, the reason to go early was we have this stuff that we really think is in the public interest to hear now. And we think we can do this. I mean, and that was the other question. Can we get this done like that? And when we realized we could, then, you know, we decided to do it that way. I mean, we have not been covering, you know, the breaking news of this story. I mean, our approach is more of a documentary approach. So we kind of viewed it that way and then trying to think of, okay, what does this what does this mean for this for the kind of the longer narrative arc of the story? And what are some things we can say more clearly that we couldn't say before that we think are important to say now? Because in Minnesota, this is, you know, it's hard to overstate it. This is a huge story. People feel very connected to Jacob Wetterling to his family, and they are asking these questions. You know, I mean, the same day of the confession, people are asking these questions all over Minnesota. You know, how could they have missed Danny Heinrich? How did this case take 27 years to solve? So, you know, we were fortunate that we were able to release, you know, those episodes when we were because we had them, you know, basically done, and then we just updated them. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is just about mechanics. I think this is something that people out there who consume podcasts, especially podcasts about crime, I think, um, would be interested to hear in terms of the production. Your show is one of the best written, cleanest written pieces of long form journalism in a podcast that I've ever heard. I just think it's outstandingly written, really beautifully laid out. The sound design is outstanding. The mixing is perfect. It really is a complete package. You have transparency in your reporting. You sort of bring in the producers who did the work and we get to you know hear those voices talking about the due diligence they put in. How big is this team? What has this taken to put together? I'm glad that you asked that because it is definitely not just me. Um, there's a core group of a couple of us. So there's a, the producer of the podcast is Samara Freemark, and the associate producer is Natalie Jablonski. So the three of us have really been this team reporting on this and producing the stories. And then we have um, our editor, Catherine Winter, and then we also have a digital team that worked on the web presentation and videos and photos and documents. We have a data reporter who we had work on this story off and on for the past nine months. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to have engineers who can do the final mix. So, you know, it, it, it is a, you know, a larger effort. But what our team does, like it, at APM Reports, is we take, we look at stories and we find a story that we think is of significance. We have the resources, you know, we devote those resources to it. So our work is, in general, like collaborative with multiple people on the team. And it would not have been possible to do this story alone at all. I mean, it really was a group effort and even to just think about this story and to have conversations with different people on the team. Because one of the things I'm always trying to do is think about what are the ways in which all of these details that I think point one direction could point another way. And it helps to have like lots of people thinking about that and questioning the story and like challenging the story throughout as you go forward. Right. I mean, it's great. You're going to hear me talk about it with Toby, Laura, and Kevin, and I'm confident that even Toby will <laughs> agree that it's just great. It's riveting. Um, so we're about halfway through the podcast. There's eight episodes that you're expecting to put together, correct? Right. So I don't want to ask you for, like, spoilers, but is there anything in particular you're really looking forward to putting out there after all this time that you can't wait for listeners like me to finally hear? 
Yes, yes. And I can't tell you. I wish I could tell you what it is. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, there's one episode that we're working on right now that I just cannot wait to have be out there because I think it's one of the most important episodes in the whole series and it's not one of the first ones. So yeah, there there are, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I really can't can't say much more than that. I mean, we're also, you know, some of this has required us to do a little bit more reporting. So for that reason, too, I need to say less instead of more at this point. Well, Madeline, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. Your podcast, In the Dark, is spectacular, and uh, we're going to now talk about it on the show. So I hope you um, listen into that part, and I hope that you make more podcasts. It's just so great, and I, I can't wait to hear more of your work. Oh, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. That was Madeline Barron again, the investigative reporter and host behind the mic of the hit podcast In the Dark. We've posted links to her show, plus more on the Wetterling case on our website, crimewriterson.com. Now, I want to talk about the four episodes of the podcast In the Dark itself in just a minute. But first, panel, I'd love your impressions on a couple of things Madeline talked about in terms of production. Now, Kevin... Uh, a few days before the podcast came out and, you know, right in the middle of their production schedule of launching the show, the case got solved. Right. Was this a boon for them or a curse? What do you think? Well, it cuts both ways, boon in the sense that it, it draws interest to the case overall. You know, as far as it being maybe a curse, that isn't to say that this ends up being a lesser podcast. What it robs them of is is the one thing that these other popular true crime stories has which is suspense Mm -hmm. and the thing about serial and making a murderer and the jinx is a question of like will justice be done and so if you could imagine season one of serial and if it starts off with Adnan Syed's conviction was just vacated Mm -hmm. but and then you go through it's a completely different story now it still could be a really great podcast and it still might be a plus but it's different however I do think this is a superior podcast nonetheless yeah I actually think it was a boon because I think that it takes that off the table. Uh, I think it takes the suspense part off the table, and I think it takes the opportunity for interference in their storytelling off the table. I mean, my opinion is that there's a lot of things that I've heard that I would hear differently if I didn't know that the case was solved. And I'm in, I'm enjoying hearing those things more. It lends more to the story for me. Toby, what do you think? Boon or curse that this case got solved just before this podcast was released? I think it was a boon for a couple reasons. One is I think knowing conclusively that it was somebody who the police most likely should have been able to identify who is in that area shows the folly of this nationwide search in a way that if there hadn't been a conclusive thing to it, I think that would still be up in the air a little bit. So it lends more credence to her hypothesis, which is that they failed. Right. But I think the other thing is, is that I think it shows sort of what good journalism they did to be able to bring this out. And I know they went back and did some remixing and things like that, but they certainly must have had a lot of these interviews and things in the can. They had all and, of them in the can. All and, of and, them. You know, so she was on the right track. What about you, Laura? Was it a boon or was it a curse? You know, I think it was a boon. I was thinking about, you know, someone knows something and how that was really beautifully produced and it had, I loved all the sound effects in that. You know, there was no satisfying ending. And in this one, even though her premise is where did the police go wrong, I think most of us still would have wanted to know who killed Jacob Wetterling. So we know up front we're going to find that out. And, you know, I also think just the timing in terms of people listening to this, 
the case breaks, people are like, oh, what's this case? This podcast comes out. Everybody that wants more information is going to be listening to this. Right. And it's right there. Um, she gets to own know. the story. Yeah, because it's it was ready to rock. And it's just amazing as you're listening to it and you're hearing the name of the killer in the work that she's already done over right. the past year. Right. And then now that we know that listening to this, it was a little bit almost like sort of like the night of in the fact that we're watching as it's happening and kind of I'm cringing a little bit going, oh, God, they almost had that guy. And now mm-hmm. I know, yes, that is the guy. So that same sort of reaction that I had when I was watching all the horrible things happen with Nas, knowing how they were going to pan out. But I I think it's a boon because I know I'm not going to be disappointed at the end. There is going to be a conclusion. Now, Laura, you heard me ask Madeline about how many people work on the show. And, you know, in the age of basement podcaster, the era of the basement podcaster, which, you know, full disclosure, I'm podcasting for my basement. You are a basement podcaster. Um, Don't you think it's an important reminder for an audience that good journalism and like really great production that they take a lot of time and a lot of people to actually produce something this good? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And it reminds me of there's been a lot of news in the past week about newspapers here in New Hampshire going out of business, a big newspaper in New Jersey going out of business. And, you know, one of the things that some of my fellow journalists and I have been talking about is, you know, this is going to lead to people that are just going online, putting up news that aren't following the same ethical standards, the same background checks, you know what I mean, in terms of actually fact checking their stories, because anybody can put news out there. And it's the same sort of thing. I mean, this sort of brings back that level of, oh, this this is a show that's been really well researched and everything's been vetted and it's put together extremely well. And you know the difference. Right. And the people that they work for gave them the time and space to actually do it. Like this was their job for a year was making this podcast. They didn't have to like file daily news stories. They didn't have to cover the latest happenings at City Hall. They just did this. Mm -hmm. What what were you going to say, Kevin? Well, I mean, I think in order to make something like that, you have to start with good ingredients, which is why it reminds me of HelloFresh, (laughs) where they have honest, natural, delicious, healthy food. Wow, that was a pivot. Wow. Well, we've all uh, sort of you know, gotten part of the HelloFresh movement. HelloFresh. We've all tried HelloFresh. Everybody got a couple of meals. Laura, what did you think? Well, I have to tell you, first off, I like how it was packaged. All the ingredients are in the nice little box. It's like a little cardboard box. A tiny little box. Yeah, for each meal. It's not just thrown in a giant bag No, no. So it's organized, but then you can recycle it very easily, which I liked. And um, it came at a very convenient time. It was a week that I was away for something. Oh, no, it was a week I went off on vacation and left my husband home. It's all Ah, and, yes. um, and I was like, oh, God, you're going to have to fend for yourself. But look, we got this Hello Fresh. Do you think you can actually cook by yourself and survive? And he did. He modified some of the recipes a little. He said, well, I decided when it called for water and sauces, I would add wine. Um, and oh. that it worked pretty well for him. Way to go. So he made some meals all by himself and um, he didn't die while we were gone. Well, that's good. That's, that's what the advertiser always wants to hear. No, no, no. Nobody so he, died eating our food. <laughs> so he uh, he made some meals while we were gone, and I didn't feel guilty about leaving him while we were up at the lake because I left him with some nice dinners to make. Yeah, HelloFresh has a, a lot of different things that they can offer customers. They've got the classic box, the veggie box, and the family box. And you can order, you can get three, four, or five different meals a week either for two people or four people. So it's really flexible as to what you need in your home. And it's a new recipe every week. These are meals that, like, you recognize. There's not super 
exotic ingredients in it. It's something you can't pronounce. But it's a healthy version of a meal I recognize. It, it is. I mean, it's like a lean meat and like some nice grain and then like a lot of vegetables. And it's like, it's just good. Yeah, absolutely. HelloFresh also has a full-time registered dietitian on staff. And that person reviews each recipe to ensure that it's nutritionally balanced. So for $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter crime, crime when you subscribe. What do you have to enter? Crime. Crime, crime when you subscribe. HelloFresh.com and enter. Crime. Man, you make it so difficult. <laughs> I'm sorry. It makes really it, sorry. it's like I don't even want to live with you. <laughs> But I might like living with you better if you use the Havenly app and design a better house <laughs> nice. for us to live in, Rebecca. Yes, yes. Havenly because, you know, a well-designed house plays a big role in our lives. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, who among us, except maybe Laura, can afford an oh. interior decorator, right? <laughs> Someone who's going to look around and say, here's what you do with that crazy L-shaped room that right, you have. Yeah, right, that, that, by the way, is a result of your massive renovation. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy problems. Yeah, well, I know, I know. Well, instead of hiring a traditional interior designer which is like super expensive and totally inconvenient you can use the Havenly app and chat with a professional interior designer for free and then get answers to your most pressing design questions like what do I do with my studio recording closet <laughs> what do we do in our studio recording closet well I don't know we should ask somebody from Havenly we should. I'm sure they have some ideas I would act personally say, what do we do with the man cave over there where the boys it's play video fam games? The fam cave. The fam cave. Oh, it could be a little cave. better. I like that. It could, it, could. it could have a little more splash of color. Some more decorative pillows, perhaps? Yeah, and if you like those decorative <laughs> pillows, if you want those, the people from Havenly will help you buy those as well. Download the app today at the Apple App Store and use the code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. I'm sorry, I didn't get that code. It's CRIME. crime. It's I, crime. Crime. So, Toby, that was a rapid-fire transition into that first ad that Kevin just did there. What did you think of that transition into that HelloFresh ad, you know, like right at the beginning of Kevin's answer to my question? Well, I think it's like uh, when a pitcher throws a change-up. Mm. You're used to waiting for it to kind of come up in like a longer conversation and say you just... He, he throws it in there. You're not ready for it. So I thought that was good. The transition to the second one, I started to be concerned that it was going to be like concubines.com or something. <laughs> ah. Laura, what did you think of Kevin's transition into that first ad and how, how rapid it was? It was very rapid. I was like, oh, he's getting so deep here talking about the ingredients of this podcast. And then I'm boom, hello fresh. So yeah, I was, I was surprised. And then the second one, was so natural that I really didn't even see that one coming. I thought he was just kind of like having a tough day in the closet there. So that I liked the second one better. Berating me as usual. I've had yeah. so many tough days in the closet. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back down to business and do what we're here to do, which is to discuss the podcast in the dark. All right. Let's start with episode one. There have been four episodes. The fourth one dropped the day before we taped this episode. So it's pretty new. But let's start with episode one. Madeline sets it up with some tape of Jacob Wetterling himself, and then she goes to the press conference where we hear the cops announcing that they have solved the case and they've gotten this confession from the bad guy, Danny Heinrich. She then says something which I think is pretty stark, which she says that the investigation of this case was a failure by any measure. 
Laura, you know how infrequent it is that we hear journalists just straight up criticize law enforcement. What did you think when you heard that this was going to be the framework for this podcast? I think that was pretty ballsy. You know, it definitely set it up in such a way that uh, you're thinking she's clearly researched this enough that she has information to back that claim up or she wouldn't be stating that. So I was I was like, ooh, this is going to be interesting to see where we go with this. It reminded me a little bit of Breakdown, you know, because Breakdown, we came in with the premise, too, that there was a breakdown of justice in that case Um, at different lens. Obviously, it's a different type of case, but it was the same sort of thing where you started with kind of that premise, knowing that the case didn't go as it should have gone. Right. I mean, one of the things that struck me, especially, I think it's hard not to compare a true crime podcast done by a reporter to Serial, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think that Sarah Koenig's sort of signature style is the, well, maybe, I don't know, let's look into it and see what we get. Mm -hmm. And that Madeline Barron just comes out of the gate saying, this is what this is. This was a failure. We're going to tell you why. What did you think about that, Kevin? I was surprised, although I think it was a good turn of phrase and I think it was it was pointed, but well done. Right. And, you know, the whole idea that you're talking about the press conference and that it revolved around police officers congratulating themselves. Diligence. Well, no, diligence, no yeah. just, just that one little phrase, which wasn't delivered in a cutting way, mm-hmm. but is a cutting remark. You know, I think back to sort of every police press conference I've ever been to. And in a way, you can say it, it is them patting themselves on the back. Now, if it's they stopped a... Uh, you know, they arrested a, a, an armed robber that had been on the loose for a couple of hours or something like that. You can give credit to the officers that worked on that. But I guess to say like, oh, well, after, tra- you know, there wasn't anybody working on this for 20 years. Right. And that the people who were, we're going to show you that they f this up and maybe they don't deserve to be congratulated. I've never seen a law enforcement press conference that wasn't framed that way. And I think that she's shown a light on that. And that was really interesting. I mean, I've never seen a press conference where they said, wow, we really messed this one up, but we finally have some answers for you. Yeah, no. Never. No, I would. I mean, I would never send a police chief out to say that. (laughs) Right. Now, the first episode really does go through the details of the crime itself in, you know, pretty intricate detail. She describes how the boys, they go out after dinner to rent a movie. The parents weren't home. You know, the kids did everything right, I think, by any measure. They asked permission. You know, initially the mom said no. The dad said yes. You know, they got the girl next door to come watch the little brother. Um, It was a very elaborate plan. They had flashlights. They wore the reflective vests on their bikes. And then we hear what happens that, you know, this man with a gun sort of jumps out at them and abducts Jacob. Do the details about how the kids did everything right almost make it worse and when you hear this crime and then how you know it sort of fed this culture of you know the whole way we, that we that we parent our kids shifting uh, in that period of time yeah i mean i think that's what's probably troubling for a lot of people is that all the same precautions that you consider to be completely adequate and that you would ask your kids to take in in this case that wasn't enough and you could sort of combine that with sort of an every town usa setting and I think that's what kind of leads to the is anybody safe sense among a lot of people. You know, I, I don't think this was a, an exact reflection on this case, but I think that's one of the good things about Stranger Things was that it was a very similar, you know, kids biking in this sort of quiet town from one place to another and one disappears. And, and so I think that was, 
kind of playing upon that kind of fear in a, in a way that I guess I hadn't really sort of focused on a whole lot, but I think it was pretty accurate in summing up the time. Well, in both cases, you're playing in a time period when it was still okay to do that. To ride right. around your bike. You know, ride around a bike. And, you know, when Jacob asks his, his father if he can go do this, you know, the concern that they have is not, well, you might do this, you might get kidnapped by somebody. It's kind of implied like, well, it's dark and maybe... Yeah, you know, you're it's on your sort bike, of, and you're riding your bike, dog, yeah, and, you've done this before. And, you know, that is just so far from anybody's mind. Well, that it that, used to be far it from anybody's mind. It used no, to I, be, no, I, right. I, I clearly remember, like, biking in my town at night, and, like, the big thing that I was concerned about was if you hear a car, you see the lights, like, get over to the, you know, right. get over right. on just, the shoulder. It's traffic, that's yeah. The problem is you don't want to get hit by a car that doesn't see you. That's or right. a bully, this case, when you're talking about the fear and the culture of fear that kind of comes up surrounding these things that were seemingly safe at the time, anytime I hear a missing child story like this, it really resonates because where I live in Exeter, there was this very big case back in 1984, a girl named Tammy Belanger. She was walking to school. She was, I think she was eight years old. She was walking to school. That was common. All the kids walked to school at that time. And somebody snatched her on the way to school. And at that time, parents didn't call the school first thing in the morning if their child was going to be homesick. And right. so that is what sort of started that here. That's when people had to start calling school to let them know the kids were gone because, you know, it was quite some time before they knew she wasn't there. But it's like people still to this day, and I'm sure it's the same way for people that grew up where the Jacob Wetterling case happened. You know, they still, you talk about that case and they remember how afraid they were when that case happened. But, you know, letting your kids like ride their bike to the store at night is today statistically still as safe as it was back then, which is like we learned the stranger abduction is a fraction of the amount of cases of a kidnapping. It is a freak. You know, it is a, it is, and we in our minds, Give that way more right. weight than it than the statistics bear out. But I think we won't culture. let our kids go out, right? And it's the culture, and we will talk about that. I think when we get to the part where we talk mm-hmm. about the media around this case. But I think there is something too that is inherently. I mean, I am completely cognizant of the statistics, and as you know, Kevin, I have always been pretty liberal with my kids in terms of letting them be independent mm-hmm. and walk places and do stuff. Because the thing that I learned, knowing the statistics, is that there's actually nothing you can do to prevent a stranger from taking your kid because when you look at the cases where it's happened the parents were all doing the right things i mean the wetterlings they didn't do anything wrong well yeah i mean when it says nothing you can do but I, but i, I understand what you're saying yeah, yeah i mean yeah, it's, yeah. if it's gonna happen it's not gonna it's be not because, an error that parents it's not gonna made, be yeah. because you made a decision to let them do x y or z because parents who don't make those decisions are equally likely to have their kids snatched because it is such a rare occurrence and it happens in such a sort of freak way. I, I do want to talk about what we heard about the investigation in the beginning of this podcast. I actually disagree that having the case solved takes the suspense away from the podcast because I think that Madeline successfully injects it back in with the writing of this first episode, these first couple episodes, when she talks about the timeline that investigators must adhere to when they are looking for a kid who's gone missing. She says that most kids who are abducted by a stranger who are going to be killed, 
within that small group are killed within the first five hours. And that is how critical the beginning of these investigations are. And that this is something that's known. This is something that's known mm-hmm. among law enforcement. So we hear the 911 call. We hear the next door girl, Rochelle's dad, the babysitter, on the phone with 911. This podcast has excellent tape of all this stuff, staying very calm for the kids who are in the house, who are freaking out. Everything's very effectively used. When you heard the beginning of this investigation, that the search was started 90 minutes after that call, that the neighbors were never questioned or questioned weeks later, and that the search was called off at 2 a.m., Toby, what was your reaction when you heard about the details of the beginning of this investigation after she'd put the suspense by giving you that timeline? I mean, they just clearly weren't ready for something like this. I don't know what the usual crime situation is in that town, but, you know, it seems like fairly elementary things that that you would just sort of expect, like talking to the people who lived in that area. So it's, it's a little it's a little hard to understand, quite honestly, and obviously extremely tragic. I was thinking at first, given that this is really a super rare kind of crime, I was giving the local investigators a pass on, you know, what every piece of that playbook should be. But then when you get to a couple later episodes, you realize they should have known better. And known more because this wasn't the first time this happened. This wasn't an isolated case. In episode two, it's called the circle, and that is because that the beginning Madeline explains how you know the circle of the search should have expanded much faster than it did. How at the beginning they had this opportunity to you know get all these clues and get him right away. Now, Toby, I have a storytelling question for you because, you know, Danny Heinrich did confess to this crime just before this podcast was released, and Madeline goes through what it was exactly he confessed to in in pretty graphic detail, you know, that he took Jacob, he drove around with him, he heard police activity on the scanner, told Jacob to duck, drove around for a long time. You know, she gives graphic details of the sexual assault that he ended up shooting Jacob when he saw a patrol car, which I don't know. It's an interesting detail that I'm not sure how I feel about that detail. You know, he walks on a foot with a shovel. He was able to steal a bobcat and use it after midnight to bury the body. And then he threw Jacob's shoes into a ravine. Very, very far from a perfect crime. So much evidence. And then we hear this cop uh, who kind of comes in with policing 101 and basically explains that, like, if they had done their due diligence and just talked to people which is something that every cop should know. What did you think of that whole part of the podcast and how she told that part of the story? It's like, um, I'm trying to think of a movie that does it like this, like maybe Silence of the Lambs or something, where you know who the perpetrator was and how it was done and what clues are available. And then sort of the suspense is watching the police or whoever and seeing if they can pick up on that, Right. right? So that's kind of the fictional sort of equivalent. I have a question for you. Okay. I have a weird thing that happens that even when I know the end, when I hear stories like this, something inside of me still feels like it might turn out differently. Do you ever have that feeling? Like you just are hoping like this time it's going to, is that crazy what I just said or do you understand what I'm talking about? No, I do. And I mean, and I think that's probably a common feeling and that's why things like this feel suspenseful even though you kind of know what happens is that there are constantly opportunities for the breakthrough to be made. This is is a very well-constructed series, I think. In the same way I was criticizing The Night Of for sort of decisions that they made, I think she's made just about all the right decisions in bringing in different elements at the right time 
to like both sort of enlighten you about what's going on, but also to build suspense in something where you actually know what the outcome is. I, I agree with you, Rebecca. I do that all the time as well. Um, recently, it's when I've been in the Game of Thrones binge. And <laughs> <laughs> so what I do is that then I'm like, oh, I found a character I really like, but I can't keep watching not knowing if they're still alive. So I go look it up on like Wikipedia. And even though I know they're dead or something, I still keep hoping for something different to happen as I'm watching. Well, I have good news for you, Laura. It actually does kind of diverge from the source material somewhat, right? Yeah, but they're still all dead. They're still a lot of death. Yeah. They just died differently. Don't get attached to anybody. <laughs> no. Like, just when I start to like someone, they get beheaded. Kevin, when you heard this policing 101 stuff, yeah. every cop knows this. You talk to everybody. You don't mm -hmm. ask if you saw something unusual. You just ask, yeah. what did you see? And you talk to everybody repeatedly. Right. I, when I heard this part, I thought, yeah, I watch Law & Order. I know that. <laughs> Did you feel that way, too? No, I'm not going to compare everything in my life to Law & Order as much as I... What is the like... matter with you? <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes wonder, and maybe we'll get to this in future episodes if this is a factor, but it seems we have a lot of state and county and local and federal law enforcement on this same case. And I wonder if... The sheriff thought the FBI talked to the people on the neighborhood. But that neighborhood. night, the, they didn't do it. No, not that night. No, you're right. Well, I think for me, in terms of like in the initial investigation, that one of the details that she talks about, and like they really did their due diligence and this investigative team of like talking to yeah. people. The guy whose dog was killed by one of the police cars, <laughs> right? Because so many police showed up on the scene. Uh -huh. His dog gets run over and killed, and he's burying the dog's body in his garden while the police are searching the woods around the neighborhood. And not only does he think, but he says to people, I have a fresh grave in my backyard. Like, You're they're going to come talk that's to my me. Dog. And that's yeah. definitely my dog. Yeah. Nobody ever walked through his yard, and he lives directly across the street from the crime scene, and there's a grave in the yard. I mean, that's insane, right? Yeah, insane it, could have, it could have been an actual grave. It's like it's not even real. Like, it, you just can't believe there can be this many things that went wrong. Well, there were this many things that went wrong. There was also one thing that in a strange way went right. And that was the thing that was sort of outlined in episode three, which was called The One That Got Away. It focused on some other abductions and assaults that happened to other boys in the same town and in nearby towns from where Jacob Wetterling was taken. In particular, this guy, Jared, who really the episode focuses around, who lived 10 miles from the Wetterlings. Madeline interviews him and his childhood best friend who didn't walk home with him one night. And then Jared ends up getting taken, sexually assaulted. Very, very similar crime as what we now know happened to Jacob. Now, FYI, the police never questioned the friend. <laughs> um, and Jared was an incredible witness. Yeah. He comes home. He tells his parents exactly what happened. They take him immediately to the police. He tells the police exactly what happened. He's able to provide a really good description of the car, the color of the car, the interior of the car, that, that, that there's a scanner in the car. He knows all these details. And yet the police start an investigation, they kind of get a little bit close, and then it goes nowhere. I mean, that was really like a stunning, stunning story. And then just to continue the story, this guy had now a, you know approached and assaulted so many kids in the town that the kids in this area had armed themselves with knives. They had given yeah. the guy assaulting them a nickname, Chester the Molester. So there's this culture now where someone is driving around, approaching and assaulting young boys. 
And this guy, Jared, was, you know, a victim who was actually taken and by the skin of his teeth released. And he's like an outstanding witness. And it goes nowhere. Toby, what did you think of this episode when we heard about this idea that these kids are walking around with knives? They'd armed themselves around a known perpetrator. Again, it's just like Stranger Things. The whole thing's very frustrating. And I think there's plenty of examples in, you know, novels and movies where the police approach the right suspect and they just don't take that final step. And that's that's another piece of the suspense. And in this case, you know, that turns out to be real. You know, it, it's it's hard at this in this day and age to kind of and maybe it's just because I'm a parent and I'm not a kid walking around with a knife. But it's hard to imagine that kids would be living kind of in that much fear and have this little subculture around defending themselves without there being adults in the community who are concerned about it in a way that would be effective enough that you would hear about it. Jared grows up. First of all, his family ends up moving to the town where uh, the guy lives, which is crazy. But he ends up growing up and he decides as an adult, I want to solve my own case. So he ends up through detective work on Facebook and so forth, tracking down other people through word of mouth that he had heard also had been approached and assaulted uh-huh. by this guy. He ends up putting this coalition of grown-ups now mm-hmm. who are trying to like revisit their childhood nightmares. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, it reminds me of Stephen King's It. Yeah, yeah. me too. That's all I could think yeah. about this whole time is it reminds me of, that's the Stephen King narrative, right? Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, this is like a fake story. <laughs> it was yeah. really, really something. Now, Laura, uh, one of the things that Madeline says is that you know th- the entire case file around the Jacob Wetterling case is sealed, which I think in- legally is very interesting. I mean, she brings up the point in one of the first episodes that like we pay the police, they're on the public payroll, and yet they have the ability to seal certain investigative files, especially investigations around kids and open investigations. But then she says that she thinks that Jared's amateur detective work may have been the thing that ended up breaking this case. I'd just love to know what you thought about this episode, about Jared's childhood experiences, about him growing up and then reinvestigating the case. When you were hearing this with all of your Nancy Drew skills, like was this ringing <laughs> bells for you this episode? Yeah, well, it was just, you know, I'm listening to this and, and like we've you, you other people have said, I'm just amazed that this wasn't tied together at the time. And I found myself thinking about if this happened now and there were similar abductions in towns in the same state, the car that matched the same description, this would be all over social media. People would have tied this together. And I think that would have put the pressure on law enforcement, maybe because the publicity would have been a little different to keep going. So I think I do think that Jared did have a lot to do with getting this case to actually move forward. It's kind of like that whole squeaky wheel thing, because he wasn't going away. You know, maybe it was just a different time and place when he came forward and it was something that was able to happen now. But this episode made me just so angry listening to it because I just I couldn't believe that these kids weren't being taken seriously, that more wasn't being done, and that there wasn't some sort of like regional sort of alert out aside from these poor boys carrying knives around. We get, you know, keep an eye out. This has been spotted. Flyers, like photocopies of like posters hanging up places. You know, creepy clowns coming out of the woods. Be on the alert. I don't know. (laughs) It does point to sort of like the pre-social media era. I mean, this was on the news. It was in newspapers. But as a coworker of mine pointed out today, who's from Minnesota, 
you know, we live in New Hampshire, so we live like in the Concord region, right? Mm -hmm. But we read the Manchester Union Leader. We read the news and we read the news on outlets like on the seacoast. And, and we Boston. Read, and yeah, we'll read Boston. We'll like look, take a look at the Keene Sentinel or whatever. Right. But at this time, and Minnesota is like a big state with like regions that are far apart. Yeah. And at this period of time, you're not, you're not aware of the local news happening 20 miles away or 50 miles away, even though it's close mm -hmm. and a kidnapper could drive their car there very easily. Mm -hmm. It feels like a world away, yeah. you know, and I think that's interesting. You know, one of the other things, Kevin, I, I would love your thoughts on this cold cases. Yeah. Very often cops do know who did it or think they know who did it. Yeah, they just can't prove it. Yeah. And they can't prove it. Did it bother you to hear that they thought they knew who did it, they couldn't prove it, and then they just stopped? Yeah, I'd like to know a little more about where that storyline goes. Yeah, and if they kept tabs on him, you know, it reminds me again of this case in Exeter. Like, they, they know who did that. And it was a guy who's now dead, but he tried to take a girl in Florida with that same physical description of the girl here in Exeter. And they tried for years, and same thing. He wouldn't confess, and then he, he died. So, right. um, But it was the same thing. They, they knew who did it, but what are they going to do at that point? They've tried everything they could, and it was frustrating to everybody. But we can just get one little parenthetical thing here. I find... Danny Heinrich's description of what happened that night a little off. Me too. Not that he yeah. didn't kill him, but the idea of this second burial ground that he he took Jacob's body and then like got some sort of like backhoe or bobcat, a yeah. bobcat yeah. at night and and stole it and drove it across the street and then dug a hole with it. That's not the fun. And then he went back to it months later and saw a jacket, so he picked up the body and bones and moved it a couple hundred feet and reburied it. It doesn't jive. I agree. Doesn't we, mean that I don't think he did it. He did do it because he led them to the body. But I don't know why he yeah. had him, what what that's all about. I'll tell you, I've listening to some of the coverage and hearing, you know, Madeline describe the hearing and hearing other reporters describe the hearing. There are certain details of his description that, don't, that ring a little weird with me too. Like the reason he shot Jacob was because he saw a patrol car. Now, how do you shoot somebody with inside of a patrol car and not raise any flags yeah. Yeah. you know what i mean he says that he never had sex with him i mean there's a lot, a lot of things that i mean i don't want to go there but his description was very specific but there also for me were details that were a little off well, but it's, it doesn't matter oh uh, well it's just you know it's 26 years later it's probably something he's thought about and there's science about how when you recount something and the little error in memory that you make when you're recounting it that becomes the new memory so especially if it's something like that where he's he's I'm sure he thinks about it constantly and it's telling him the self the story constantly. Right. And he's not getting prosecuted for this particular crime. So he can say really say what he'd not want to say he can say whatever he wants. I mean he he confessed to killing him and he yeah. did bring them to the body, but the the devil is not in the details for him insofar as that he knows he's not going to get a worse punishment if he says certain things. Yeah, he has no things. reason that we know of. Unless he had an accomplice or, but I don't know. I just, I just don't buy the Unless there are details of the crime said. that don't make him look good. Yeah. You know, if he's trying to make it sound like he wasn't as bad as he could have been. Yes. You know I know, what I mean? I know, I know what you're, you're expressing. Yeah. Yes. I want to talk about the fourth episode of In the Dark that just aired this week. It actually dropped the day after I spoke to Madeline and I felt like we sort of got close to it in our conversation when we talked about the branded crime. Now, Toby, you sent me a note today about the Natalie Holloway thing and the poly class thing and the way that certain cases sort of stick in our psyche. 
And though you hadn't heard of the Wetterling case, I would just love your thoughts on the branded crime, these cases that stick in our psyche, and what kind of impact that has, you know, when we think about stories like this. There's a number of different things, um, one of which is, is clearly, and they talk about this in the podcast, is that people take it as a cautionary tale and I think ascribe, you know, greater frequency to what happened than the way it actually is. Kidnappings are one of the big ones, stranger kidnappings. So I, I think what's different now is that there's so many outlets now in which there are so many cases that get poured over. Right. So, you know, you had Nancy Grace and you have headline news and, you know, for some of them you have CNN and Fox and mainstream and today show. Yeah. And then there's 48 hours and some of these rise above others. Like I think the Natalie Holloway thing got more press and more attention than a lot of these. Just the fact that I know her name off the top of my head proves that. And then there was one with, was it Casey Anthony? Yep. Is that her name? Yep. Uh-huh. Who's, yeah. With the baby. Unfortunately, I think a lot of this has to do with like attractive white women being either victims or perpetrators. Right, right. Uh, it's the same thing with uh, Jody Arias. Right. So, you know, I, I wonder now, given the, the attention that gets given to the whole sort of panorama of true crime in the news, whether something like Jacob Wetterling would seem quite as profound and troubling or whether it would just get lost in sort of the general noise. Now, Kevin, we did hear on the podcast, she had a lot of really great tape of Jacob Wetterling's parents, Patty and Jerry, going on Geraldo. Yeah. That, as uh, she describes it, the clearinghouse of grief. What a great line. What a great line. And just as an aside, in journalism that's written this way, straight, clean, straightforward, factually based journalism when someone makes an editorial decision to say something like the Geraldo Rivera show was a clearinghouse of grief, doesn't that just stick out of the texture in a way? It does. I mean, I think it goes to... In a good way. In a good way. But I think it's also sort of the style, the post-serial first-person journalism that you get a little more leeway to do that. But this isn't Madeline's story in the way that serial was no, Sarah's no, story. No, so maybe not a first-person narrative but certainly I think it was an astute observation oh oh, yeah no it is no but if you're asking about tape yes yeah but if you're asking about can you get away with saying that in most newsrooms no you're right because you're making an editorial comment even about Geraldo right but (laughs) but then she ends up being able to back it up with 10 minutes but even before you couldn't do you again you're editorializing right however in this context in the way these stories are presented we allow for that. Right. So what did you think of the tape? That's what I want to know. What did you think of oh. hearing the parents on the Geraldo Rivera show and then bringing John Walshon, who, by the way, exactly explained what actually did happen to their son, which we now know. Yeah. And then knowing right that Patty and Jerry were right there through the satellite feed and being subjected to this mm. awful, awful television experience with a song. Oh, and the song was the worst. Yeah. yeah, that song was pretty bad. There was a no- a lot of the the tape from the time was very moving right. to me. Like some of the um, the news accounts of things like the people holding arms and all the baseball players, the, with the baseball names players. On their jackets, I mean, the white I no, I mean, I was choked up at a couple of different times listening to that kind of tape because the emotion was really real and raw. And like the first time I heard. 
whatever the, the song that he liked right. that they played, I was like, I mean, I was really moved. It was a real song. It was a real song. It and wasn't that, a song written for his Yeah, which was like just, right. And it ended up becoming, you know, it symbolized that the whole search for Jacob was a machine onto itself. Right. With benefactors in the form of advertising dollars, really, is what it all comes down to, is that it's a big case that drives TV news. It just does. You know, say that's not true, that when you have a big story, well, it doesn't drive well, well, we, TV news? Yeah, but you make it sound like if it were not for Jacob, there would not be a story that no, day. There would be a Geraldo, let's face and, it. Right, then. and Pledge would not have had a place to advertise that day. <laughs> that's true. It is, It is though, about feeding the beast. Yes. Which oh, is I thought the, we were having a Pledge commercial. Oh! <laughs> I was like, wow, that was a smooth transition, So, so, so Laura, you keep, I would love to know what you thought of this portion of the podcast. We heard this Geraldo Rivera tape we heard all about the media stuff happening around the case. What did you think when you heard all this stuff? The whole Geraldo interview was very bizarre, but I mean, that doesn't surprise me. I liked the clips of the phone calls. Yes. When they had the phone set up at the parents' house and you're just listening to these people and you're like, who are these people? Okay, so for any listeners who for whatever reason haven't paused at this point and gone back, basically the police set up a secondary call center for tips at Jacob Wetterling's family's house. So his parents, Patty and Jerry, were taking calls all day and all night for months and months and months from strangers with tips, from psychics with tips, from crazy people who woke up in the middle of the night and had a dream and just felt the need to call the Wetterlings about the dream people they had. People who put their kids on the phone saying they were Jacob? Yeah. So we acknowledge the Geraldo stuff was nuts. Let's talk about the phone calls. Laura, when you're listening <laughs> to this tape, first of all, those people are saints, right? The Wetterlings are saints. I just felt so bad for them. I'm thinking, God, these poor people. And it's like at some point you probably get your hopes up in the beginning when you first are getting these phone calls and then you're getting them over and over and they're all just so far out there. It's like, how do you even weed through that to know if anything is credible? Because nothing I heard sounded even remotely credible. Yeah. So then there was the section where the guy called and thought he had joined the Carnies and he was traveling around out and was like Oregon or something. He's the bearded lady now. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, was oh, weird. I mean, in some regard, I can understand how the police got so off track from actually policing 101 because they're getting so many tips like that. It also it, it kind of raised the question for me of, you know, this crowdsourcing the investigation. It's good and bad. What did it remind you of? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, yeah, I was going to say it reminded me of like Reddit. It reminded me of podcasts trying to solve crimes. Oh, it's but easy it was... to tweet at somebody. It's like a whole other person who goes to the telephone book. Talks yeah. to the and, parents. And, yeah, and calls them up at night to tell them about their stupid dream. They handled that stuff, at least the ones we heard, with such equanimity. It was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe that they were willing to be so sort of polite and understanding with these people who – those whatever people were whatever with. the intentions they think they have are being you know fairly exploitive and or arrogant and that they think that they have some kind of insight into something in which they absolutely cannot there there's two things that stuck out to me one is again this idea of having psychics involved to me it's ridiculous you don't need to be spending your resources on that and anytime you're spending trying to track that stuff down like I understand why psychics want to get involved because if they like close their eyes and they hit a bullseye that makes their career yeah but you know enabling that seems to me to be crazy I'm wondering what you thought about and I think it's really interesting how Madeline's interviews with the parents she's kind of gotten at some of the things that happened in their relationship 
after Jacob went missing. And one of the things that she gets to are these divides that happen in their relationship. And one of the divides is that the dad starts talking to psychics because he feels hopeless. And the mom the entire time is like, yeah, it's bullshit. Like, I'm just talking to the police. How do you feel about them sharing that stuff and her including in the podcast, that this was really, really tough on them. The parents I come off to me as being pretty, when I say unbelievable, I don't mean like I don't believe them, but I mean, they, they just- I mean, they're awesome. Yeah, they just, they, you know, I would never find a reason to criticize somebody who's had something like that happen to them. If they're going to find solace in talking to psychics or whatever, That that's not for me to judge. Right. my. My, my issue is more than people who are actually the psychics themselves who are yeah. trying to make hay out of this. And the other thing is about Geraldo Rivera did a lot of damage back then in hyping these things that were just not true. Right. Like he was big into the satanic ritual abuse stuff. He was always hyping these things about the the danger that your kids are in and and how all these like little conspiracies are going on in our country and bringing in these crackpots who are like you know there are times when they were talking about how there are all these kids being sacrificed and if you just did the numbers there's like no way that could possibly happen yeah there was a lot know? of Geraldo tape in all the West Memphis three documentaries yeah. that we yeah watched. I mean yeah. he just you know he's still on TV but he did a lot of serious damage and, I would argue and, that Nancy Grace has done the same for our current true crime culture this like pro 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 prosecutor anti 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 defendant yeah some of the guys she's had in our show are bad guys bad people but does that attitude sort of prejudice the entire culture against believing anybody might be innocent and might be the product of a wrongful conviction? Absolutely, it does. You know, one thing I, I thought was really good about the way the podcast portrayed the parents is that you can tell there is still tension between them about this. Yep. And don't shy away from that. And they keep that in there. And, you know, the percentage of couples who get divorced after the death of a, a child is, is, you know. Astronomical. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. way up there. And so to have gotten through that, you know, you'd think, oh, well, you know, hey, they survived all of that. And so they must be really strong. And, so, and they probably have a very great relationship in 99% of the other aspects of their life. But this is still something that gets under their skin. Right. In some ways to kind of went their own separate ways. It adds on this. heart to the story, doesn't it? It does. Well, I, I do kind of want to just wrap up our conversation now. I feel like we're going to talk about this show again, right? Yeah, we got to keep coming absolutely. back. Absolutely. It's continuing. Um, so the style of In the Dark, clean writing, great use of sound. I'm not going to ask you guys if you like it. I'm just going to give you a three rating scale just for like just the writing, use of sound, and the sort of the devices, the storytelling. Is it good, great, or the best? Kevin, go. It's great. <laughs> when it's done, I'll tell you if it's the best, but it's great. Toby, do you think that in the dark, the writing, the use of sound, the reporting, good, great, or the best so far? I think the storytelling stuff, again, I come back to like the decisions that she's made. I, I think are so far are as good as any that I've heard as far as podcasting goes and the sound stuff I actually hadn't really thought about. And uh, what was the other one? If you haven't thought about it, it means it was great. I'm just <laughs> saying that as somebody who does sound, like if you're not thinking about the sound, that means the sound is great. 
Okay, so that's great. And then there was one the other writing, one. The writing, the storytelling, the... The, uh, the yeah. writing, write, yeah, I mean, the writing, the whole the whole thing is, is super strong. This is just as good as, as Serial Season 1. Laura, what do you think? The style of In the Dark, the writing, the use of sound, the storytelling, good, great, or the best? I'm going to go great. I think it has potential to go higher, depending on how it turns out. I love the little theme song at the end that kind of sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go with great. What else are you hoping she'll cover in the podcast? You know, I'm kind of hoping that, you know, it's been laid out pretty clearly a lot of the places that the police didn't follow up where it seems like logically they should have. I'm hoping to hear from some of the police who actually took part and have them kind of put on the hot seat here. I want to know why Danny Heinrich never hightailed it out of town. Because as far as the profile goes, in a lot of cases, if you're the killer, one of the things that you will do is that if you don't insert yourself into the investigation, you will move away. Right. Or you will change your appearance, which is why I'm surprised a box didn't show up at his house with the name Danny on it from Isalon so he could color his hair. (laughs) Isalon provides professional grade, completely personalized hair color created just for you and delivered to your door. That's true, because we had a box delivered to our door with my name on it from Isalon, right? Yeah, it didn't say old lady, it said Rebecca. It did not say old lady, and it did not say you're about to leave town because you committed a horrible crime. Let's just face it. No, but if you do, you want to look your best. That's true. I filled out a questionnaire, I uploaded my photo, my personal colorist formulated my color from over 15,000 pigments and possibilities. And then my unique Isalon cover got delivered to my door with my name on the bottle, instructions, how to get the hair the way I wanted it. And then I had a call with my personal colorist. We did some talking about like what I should do and how, and that's how it all went. It was actually pretty great. It was, as they say, a disruptor in the industry because like for once I didn't have to make that appointment that I usually make to get my hair That's personalized. So if, if I called up and said, I want the Rebecca, I can't get that, right? I don't think you can. No, I would have to get, yeah, <laughs> I would get the Kevin. Yeah, yep. So visit esalon.com slash crime right now. New customers will receive 50% off their first box. That's just $10 for your personalized hair color. Yours, not Rebecca's. Covered my pesky grays. Yeah, get 50% off your first box at esalon.com slash crime now. That's esalon.com slash crime. Crime, because if you're going on the lamb, you could change your hair color. That could (gasps) definitely like help with your escape. Can I tell you something? When I was talking to my personal colorist on the phone, it was like a super fun, like very personal conversation. Like one of the questions was, he was like, I see here that you said you needed like an extra batch. I'm like, I am basically a Wookiee, like from the back (laughs) up. I need as much as you can stuff in that box that will like... Like my colorist that I go to at the salon, like she mixes up like four huge mixing bowls worth of color for me. And he laughed and we talked about it. I mean, it was hilarious. If I had said I need to go on the lamb, he would have hooked me up. He yeah. would have. Yeah. What color would you go if you went on the lamb, Rebecca? I don't know. <laughs> Green. Maybe like a redhead? Ugh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you could be any color you want. Just go to esalon.com slash crime. 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 Now, the only thing more worn out than Rebecca's hair is oh. is the magnetic strip oh, on the back of my credit card. Or my credit card. So that's why I need <laughs> Nerd, Nerd Wallet. Wallet. Yeah. yeah. Nerd Wallet is the fast way to get access to the personalized tools that let me compare over 1,700 credit cards, making it easy to find 
and apply for my next credit card because there are lots of different banks out there. They always have different deals, but not all credit cards are equal. Why just take the credit card that comes in the mail? Wait, are you saying that the credit card that I have where like I can't even read it anymore? Like everything's like rubbed off of it and flat? Yeah. Like it might be time to replace that one? It might be, yeah. It might be time <laughs> to get a credit card that fits in with the way that you make purchases. You mean purchases? the one I can't even use anymore because it's all like worn out? It's all worn out. <laughs> even the Russian hackers don't want it. <laughs> They threw that one back. But you can look for a credit card that maybe um, is good for transferring a large balance to another account. Or miles? Miles for travel or bonus points, uh, cash back, something with uh, a low APR. And in each of those categories, what cards provide what? If you have a really good credit score, maybe you want card A. Maybe if you're building your credit, card B is better for you. And NerdWallet also has financial experts that offer clear, honest, straightforward advice, reviews on the cards. They read the fine print and they give you advice. And they also have other stuff because, like, I'm always doing the wrong thing as far as, yeah, like, you actually are. You're like, oh, it's pay off this card. It's good for your credit. And I always pay off the wrong card. They're like, no, not that card. Cancel that account. And it's, you have too many open accounts. And I cancel the one. No, that's the one you're supposed to keep open. It's like I can't win. No, you can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I you just, need NerdWallet. I need some credit. And that's why I'm going to check out NerdWallet. You can get, get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works hard for you. Visit nerdwallet.com slash crime. crime. That's nerdwallet.com slash crime. Nerdwallet.com slash crime. You do deserve it. You deserve it. I deserve it. Even though you can't live with me. All right, now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime crime of of the the week. week. Police are on the lookout for a brazen thief who broke into a YMCA in Riverside County through the ceiling to steal cash from a register. According to KESQ-TV, security footage captured the man kicking through ductwork in the ceiling of the YMCA's Child Development Center in Indio, California. In the footage, you can clearly see it. The man drops to the floor, he breaks into a cash register, he steals all the money inside, and then makes a daring escape out the door. There's just one problem. The cash register in question was a children's toy, and it was filled with play money that is worth next to nothing. Maybe next to nothing. (laughs) It's play money. It's worth nothing. So here's my question. Laura Bricker, assuming this cat burglar is eventually caught, what punishment do you think is appropriate for a man who steals thousands of dollars in pretend money? Oh, my. So I think that he should have to go and volunteer there to teach young children how to play Monopoly, and he would have to be the banker. Ah, <laughs> could bring all the cash. Yeah. That's really, really good. Toby, what do you think? What would be the appropriate punishment for the man who stole thousands of dollars in pretend cash from a pretend cash register at a child development center at a YMCA? I don't know. A lot of tickles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Pig pile. <laughs> and what about you, Kevin? What is the appropriate punishment for the cat burglar who stole a bunch of fake money from a toy cash register in a children's center at a YMCA? I think he's going to timeout. <laughs> he's got to go in the corner. 
I think he should go directly to jail. Go do di- not pass go <laughs> and do not collect $100. How about that for some punishment? That'll teach him. I love in the news coverage how they have like photos of the plastic cash it's register. Straight up Fisher Price with, cash with, register. With the drawer open. <laughs> like you can rifle through it. Giant plastic. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way that you would think this was an adult cash register if you saw it. No. Drugs are very bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> Charlie Murphy. <laughs> All right, we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, how can people find you on the Twitter? At Laura Bricker. If they want to tweet with you, Toby Ball, may they do that? And how would they do so if so? <laughs> what the hell? Wait, that Queen back. of syntax. I'm just trying to make it so he can't just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Ball, how can our listeners find you on the Twitter? Yes. <laughs> at, at, at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet with you, how can they do that? For which to do with, they must go to at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also find me at Reb Lavoy on Instagram. Our show is also on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. Send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, CrimeWritersOn.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, Buy Stuff, using our Amazon link. Check out our new podcast about law and order called These Are Their Stories. And if you love this show, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners find out all about us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the burgeoning media empire we hide in a very hot closet in our basement. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you later. Use the code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purposes. 20% off your your furniture purchases. Is there like a gas leak at your place or something? No, Kevin had a a long, hard day. (laughs) Download the app today at the Apple App Store. Use the CRIME. Use the... (laughs) (laughs) Is there a gas leak? There may be. Okay. So here's a question. The next time your friends stop by for a get-together, are they going to leave envying your charisma, or are they going to start a group text message thread about your awful dorm room-inspired home design? Ouch. If you hate feeling like an adult stuck in a teenager's home, you might appreciate the new Havenly app. It's the easiest way to decorate your home. Once you've downloaded the app, you'll have access to free home design consultations. And if that consultation inspires you, you can work with a Havenly interior designer to lay out and shop for your dream space in an easy four-step design process. What you want to do is download the Havenly app and use the code CRIME at checkout and you'll get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. That's right. Get the Havenly app and use the code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. 
It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.